Canuck Central, Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. This hour is presented by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned VC company helping local business since 1892. Mark Moser, Avalanche play-by-play, is going to join us in just a little bit. It turns out that uh, Kel McCarr guy is pretty good. That goal he scored last night, man. He's decent. And he's done it so many times this year where he just takes the puck at the point, goes down the wall, and finds a way to cut in. It's because it's it, it's fascinating because it's not against the rush. It's just like an in-zone play. Yeah, know? I know. <laughs> well, just the way he's able to generate speed and power off a start and a stop, you yeah. know? And it, just overall, what he's able to do, it's it's mind-bending how talented he is. And he's able to do it at such a high pace. And I don't know, just... The way he's able to go from zero to a hundred is pretty remarkable. Yeah, um, one of the most. Who are the most watchable players in the league? That's maybe a, a topic. That's for a great day. topic. We should have that discussion. I mean, you know, locally we talk about Quinn, especially as defenseman, but in McCarr is like, yeah, right up there, just on another level. Uh, let's uh, welcome in our next guest, Mark Moser, Avalanche play-by-play, joining us here on Sportsnet 650. Thanks for this, Mark. How are you? Doing good, guys. How you doing tonight? Uh, we're doing we're doing well. We're just marveling at Kale McCarr. What else is new, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, even for us who have seen him from day number one, you know, he comes up with new things all the time. I, I just, guys, in all honesty, I, I don't know where he can be. I mean, he's twenty three years old. You got to think a hundred point season is in his future, but uh, his toolbox is just uh, it's probably the biggest amongst defensemen in the National Hockey League right now. It's amazing. Well, it, it truly is, but as as far as, as the, the amount of power that he generates and the way he's able to score goals as a defenseman, I mean, what is the ceiling here as far as production goes? I mean, we've seen Roman Yossi and do what he's done this year, and we look at Kale McCarr and his overall ability. I mean, we're talking about a defenseman that could have the potential to maybe score 40 goals one year, which seems astonishing, but is that really ridiculous for a guy like McCarr? You know, I don't know that it's ridiculous, but it, it feels improbable only because, you know, I mean, just the, the opportunity to put it in from the back end. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But I'll, I'll tell you guys this. I mean, and it's kind of sad, too, because somebody's going to lose the Norris Trophy. And obviously, Roman Yossi had an unbelievable last couple of months of the regular season and separated himself in terms of points. But when you look at Kale's overall game and you look at points per game in the playoffs and you look at at you know, his plus-minus in comparison. You look at hits and, and you know, all different kinds of, of I suppose, propellerhead analytic stuff, you know, in addition to the points. I mean, he's just uh, an all-around unbelievable player. I don't know that he can get to 40, but he's doing things on a nightly basis that, that you know, some of us had never seen before. My partner, Peter McNabb, played in this league for a long time, has been in the league. You know, his father was a, was a Stanley Cup champion, was a GM in this league for a long time, and it's just um, it's just pretty amazing. He'd never seen you know anything like this, and they quite like what Kale is doing. I mean, and then when you start to compare him amongst the all time greats, nobody wants to go there yet. You know, you're 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 reluctant to because you know who the all time greats are. But I can tell you guys that one of the best defensemen I've ever seen came into the the booth a couple of weeks ago, and, and uh, Peter asked him, hey, have, you, have you had a chance to see McCarr in person? He's like, no, I haven't, but tonight I've been waiting for this moment for a long time, and I'm so excited. And I thought to myself, well, if that guy's excited, 
then this kid must be something special. So it's uh, it's a pleasure to watch him every single night. Uh, did did you expect such a? I mean, look, w- we know that the Avalanche were heavy favorites in this series, especially without Soros on the other side. But I, I just I didn't expect five nothing in the first period, Mark. Yeah, I didn't either. You know, and listen, I'm sure it's going to be a different story coming up tomorrow night. The Predators, they've got some, they've got some talent. I mean, you know, you look at Matthew Shane, former Avalanche, he had 43 goals in the regular season. He put two on the abs last night. He's not going anywhere. You know that Forsberg is going to be there. You know that, that uh, Granlin will be there, and Yossi's going to do his thing. But, guys, in all honesty, the, you know, when you look at the, the last four years for the abs, losing the first round of the Preds and then three straight second-round losses, you know, there have been times uh, on, on more than one occasion where they've been in the postseason and they've been on their second-string goalie, sometimes third-string goalie, and even one time a fourth-stringer. And you're like, man, what? Yeah, you, you just you feel helpless at times because, you know, your number one guy, the guy who is a stud, the guy who has done it all, can't play, you know, for, for whatever reason. And the abs have been there. So I can only imagine what's going on with the Nashville Predators, it's difficult. You know, you, you expect your guy to be there and you, you expect to be whole. And let's be honest about it. The abs are the number one seed. Mm-hmm. The Preds are, are an eight. And, you know, even if, even if they had their number one in Soros, a, a guy who I think is the top five in this league, you know, the abs would be heavy favorites in the series anyway. So it, it's difficult for them. But I did not expect five. I don't think anybody can expect five right out of the gates. It was just... It was an onslaught. You know, you had a power play goal, an even strength goal, and a shorthanded goal in the first ten minutes. That's never been done in postseason hockey before. So it was uh, it was a statement, I think, for this Avalanche team that that this team is ready to to take on all comers and ready to uh, to make the ultimate run this year. Well, and really show the depth of scoring. I mean, six different goal scorers, and the one guy who had two goals was Nathan McKinnon. And you know, McKinnon already three points in one game. And just looking at his production in the postseason. This is a man who, has, who now has 72 points in 51 games. I mean, we talk so much about guys being able to elevate come the postseason, and Nathan McKinnon really does, doesn't he? Yeah, he really does. I mean, he's at a 1.41 points per game in the postseason, so he does get better once the games get bigger. And we ran a graphic last night. And, and so when, when, you're, when you're calling the games for the team and you're around these guys every day, and, you know, so on and so forth, you've seen them you know, through their whole career – you know, I, I guess maybe you lose perspective. So we put a graphic up last night, all-time points per game in postseason history. Number one, and this is, this is with 50 games or more, number one is Wayne Gretzky, obviously. Number two, Mario Lemieux. And number three is Nathan McKinnon. You're going, wow. And then Miko Rantanen is now coming in at, at the number seven spot. You're going, what, where did he come from? You know, and, and um, I think it, it's once you start slotting it in where guys – fit you know in, in just these different categories it just makes you shake your head and these are not like well you know on on Tuesdays in the postseason against the team that's a seven seed or less he's got 1.41 goals per game you know he's this is this is amongst I mean just playoff games points per game all time where do you sit and it's it's only what to me anyway because you know you, you've seen these guys their whole career it's when you just lay it out there and you you throw up the other names that are around them where you're just blown away. You're like, it can't be, but uh, there are the numbers. They don't lie. Mark Moser, our guest. Uh, Nazem Kadri, what a season he had uh, back in time here for the playoffs. Um, and, and we know his, his playoff history is not as, as bright as uh, the players we just talked about. 
Um, do, do you see a different Nazem Kadri this year in Colorado than, than maybe when he first got to the team? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, he's come in this year. I'm not Again, I don't know what happened in the offseason, but he has been so fully committed to the team and so fully committed to, to just focusing on hockey and, and doing the ultimate that, that it's, it's shown. I mean, his season was unbelievable. And, you know, again, Pete and I talking throughout the course of the year, it's very rare that a guy hits the age of 30 and all of a sudden has his best season ever in the league, and maybe by a lot. Well, it's happening now around the league. I mean, it happened for Matt Duchesne. It happened for Roman Yossi. It happened for Steven Stankos. It happened for, you know, Nazem Kadri. There are a number of guys now when you look around the league, oh, you know, they, they – I, we haven't had this great of a season, you know, all throughout our 20s, and we've been in the league 11, 12 years or whatever. They hit 30, 31, 32, and they're having their best year, and you're going, what the heck is going on in the NHL? But Kadri, just up close and personal, it's been, you know, it's, it's just been a complete and total focus. I, I think that, that what happened last year, I think there was major regret there, and I think there was major, you know, self-evaluation about what happened in that first round against St. Louis. And Jared Bednar made the point a couple of weeks ago, and we saw it again last night when, when Olivier was on his way after he got uh, a game misconduct, and he's on his way to the, to the bench being escorted by the linesman. And he grabs Kadri by the shoulder, and he throws him down on his back, and Kadri just says, hey, what, what's going on, dude? He, he's had to bite his tongue an awful lot this year, and he hasn't engaged in the funny stuff. He hasn't let anything get the best of him. And listen, I mean – He's had to. We know his past history. It's there for everyone to see. He knows his past history. And so he's, he's just had to eat it, and he's eaten it. You know, I mean, he has really just been all about the team. And I had asked him, I think, in December, hey, what, what's going on with you? What, what? He says, you know what, what I did? I guess I just I, I focused completely in the offseason, and all I want to do is play simple, smart hockey. I'm not trying to do too much. I just want to play simple, make the right pass, make the right read, make the right play at a, at a high pace, and that's what he's done. Now, as far as coaching is concerned, Jared Bednar has a lot has had a lot of success. I mean, the first year he was there, the team didn't do much of anything, of course, as they were going through the rebuild, but made the playoffs five straight years now and obviously looking to have some postseason success this year and, and trying to win the Stanley Cup. Having covered him and watching him year in and year out, what would you say the greatest strength is of Jared Bednar. Is he a motivator, so to speak, X's and O's, and the structure he gets the team to play with? How would you assess Jared Bednar as a head coach? Well, I think his system is very, very good. I, I think that it's, it's a responsible system, but it allows the best players to be the best players. And he will tell you, you're, you're, you're coaching a team full of some of the best offensive players on the planet, but that's not where it starts. It all starts in your own end. And I, I know a lot of coaches will say that, but but that's truly what the case is. And then the defensemen who can, they get the, the, that puck to the forwards and then let's go. And then allow the forwards to do what they do. But he, he preaches defense. He preaches back checking. I mean, it's, it's you know, and he, he runs practices guys at a very high level. If you ever watch a Colorado Avalanche practice, it's efficient, but it's smart and it's productive. And whether you're on the ice for 30 minutes or an hour, whatever it may be, they're getting the most out of every single opportunity they have to get out there as a team. And it's not often in today's NHL because you have so many back-to-back games and the schedule is compressed and so on. But, but they're very high-tempo, very, very focused practices. And part of that, I think, is the, is the guys he's coaching. 
but he's also incredibly even keel. Now he knows how to massage the best players. He knows when to let the best guys go and, and coax the, the younger guys up and whatnot. But the, the thing about Jerry Bednar is everyone is accountable. Every single player from the best superstar all the way down to a guy called up from the AHL. And I think the guys really appreciate that. You know, everybody's accountable and he treats everybody fair and, and like, uh, you know, like a grown up, and it's worked. Now, that's not to say that nobody, you know, that he's not disappointed that, that they haven't gone further. I mean, there's, there's a lot of pressure, I think, on him and a lot of pressure on this team. And he said it the other day. He said, you know, he was asked, are, are you tired of talking about, you know, the past? And he's like, yeah, yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep, sure am. Uh, I'm done talking about it. They are, this team is fully focused and, uh, and ready to go. And, and Jared Bednar, guys, you talk, I mean, when he came in at the 48-point season, by far the worst in this franchise history, and he'd never been in the league. But you've got to learn, you know, where where the the locker room is in every city. And you've got to learn your team. And you've got to learn about the league and the travel and everything. And he's not only adapted, but he's flourished. He's done a wonderful job. Hey, Mark, uh, we really appreciate your time tonight. Uh, enjoy the rest of the series. All right, guys, good to see you. Or good to talk to you, I should say. And, and hope to see you uh, next season. Love Vancouver. Thanks so much. Absolutely, thanks, Mark. There is Mark Moser, Avalanche, play by play, one of the best guys in the business, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I love his calls, too. Oh, yeah. Always super hyped. Yeah, always hyped. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always been complimentary of some of the Canucks players, too. I remember Patterson's rookie season. Yeah. How, you know, how, how how hyped he was of that game, the Canucks and Avalanche. I think the 6-5 overtime game, remember that one? That was yep. a really exciting game. And I remember his call kind of going viral in Canucks Nation because of how, how he was waxing poetic about the way Patterson was playing that game specifically. That was his in his rookie season, of course. I mean, Besser went ham in that game against the Colorado Avalanche. But it was also uh, interesting hearing him talk about Jared Bednar a bit and trying to get a sense of, okay, what is his strength as a coach? Because you look at a team that's incredibly talented. They have, you know, a stacked roster. But being able to get the most out of your guys... Yeah, and also being a team that does harp on defensive responsibility and that type of structure, you know, it's interesting. Interesting to hear him talk about how comprehensive the approach is from Bednar. It, you know, when when Bednar first came on, he was uh, a bit of a um, surprise hire. You know, wasn't exactly a guy that for me at the time, was you know one of the buzzworthy names on the radar. But he's done a really good job. And I, I guess that's the fine balance because what do we know about the Jack Adams trophy specifically? If you are expected to be a great team, good luck winning the best coach in the National Hockey League. Yeah, unless right? like, you break records. Yeah. Like Bednar probably should get a sniff at the Jack Adams, but he won't. I don't think Colorado was healthy, fully healthy, at any point during the course of the season until the very end. McKinnon, McKinnon played 65 games this year. McKinnon was hurt. Byram was hurt. McCarr was hurt. Kadri was out. Landeskog was out. Rantanen spent time out of the lineup. Like they, they were missing all of their stars, and sometimes multiple stars, at different points of the season. He's gotten the best out of guys like Nachushkin and really found a two-way game. You want to talk about a team that is fast, like player-wise, but also plays fast. 
that's kind of the avalanche. They are. And if you watch them, how they play out of their own end, too, and you see how successful they are as a defense, and you see their transition game. Not only do they have guys like Hill McCarr, of course, and, and Devin Taves has been incredible, but something that Rutherford mentioned to us, being available. What are your options when you're facing pressure? And you can watch Colorado play and watch some of these higher-end teams. When they're facing that type of pressure, how they're able to find available outlets. And, you know, we'll do the goal horn coming up, but if you don't have that outlet, I don't care how good you are. When you have pressure in your face, you can make the wrong decision. You can wait too long to get the puck out. Next thing you know, everybody's harping on the defense and how bad you're playing and how these guys can't move the puck. It's like, well, who am I moving the puck to? Yeah. And that's half the battle. Um the other thing about Nazem Kadri uh, that was mentioned, uh, Kadri's having a breakout year at age 30. Difference between Kadri and Miller, Kadri is hitting free agency this summer, whereas Miller is not. So Kadri does get to cash in on his career year. Miller may not. Miller may not have that chance. Um, it's... You know, it's um, it is interesting yeah. how that all works, and you, know, you think about Miller and this upcoming year for him. You know, I just wonder about the whole security part of it all, because chances are he is not hitting the level that he did this year, and I'm curious how the Cadre situation plays out. Because I feel Miller's camp may be looking at the Kadri situation and seeing what he gets paid in free agency yeah. and using it as a comp for whatever their next contract looks like. And Kadri is a couple years older. Yeah. Because, you know, he's turning third he's turning thirty two next season. Yeah. But it will be instructive. Because if he gets a contract worth fifty to sixty million in total money. Yep. How are you paying less for JT Miller? And yes, Kadri had a great year, but he had less points than JT. JT had 99. Kadri had 87. Yes, and he missed 11 games and everything. But still, you know, Kadri has had a couple of years where he's hit 90 before. We had 97 a couple of years ago. He had 95 and 82. Uh, sorry, uh, you know, 36 points, 87 points. This is the first time he's, I was looking at penalty minutes for a second. Sorry, 87-point season, and he's never hit this point before. And JT's had a couple of years where he's been... Um, a point-per-game player. Yeah. So if Kadri gets a contract that's massive in the term, I want to get caught up in AAV because I don't think that matters as much. To me, it's total money. That's going to yeah. be fascinating for Kadri. Um, if if the term stays around five years, that would be interesting, but I'd be curious to see what the AAV looks like that for Nazem Kadri as well. Because as uh, Elliot Friedman mentioned on uh, today's 32 Thoughts, you know, maybe... The negotiation with Miller for the Canucks is more about term, potentially willing to go a little higher on the AAV, but the term would have to be right for JT Miller. Yeah, and and again, for all the talk we hear about AAV and term, the only number that matters matters is total total money. And especially for these guys who are getting to the last years, how do you divide up that type of money? How do you get me to fifty million bucks? Yeah, and it sounds great. Then it's like, yeah, we offered him a four-year deal at nine million per season. And fans be like, they offered him a lot of money. And you know they did. And, and yes, you know, technically yeah. it's a lot. It's it's what thirty uh thirty-eight million dollars for four years? Yeah. Or forty, you know, forty you know, class forty-four million. So it's forty-four million over four years, which is a lot of money. 
But if you're talking about him looking at 60 or 65 million, that's a $20 million gap. And the AAV doesn't matter if the total money's that far off. It's, uh, and, and he's been a point per game. So if Miller stays around a point per game next year or drops to closer to a point per game, you know, he's still getting at least uh, 50 million in total value come unrestricted free agency. It's Dan Richo, Sat T.R. Shaw. Coming up on Canuck Central, we'll have uh, Dan Rosen joining us. We'll take a look at more of the series ongoing in the Stanley Cup playoffs. This is Canuck Central. That final hour of uh, Canuck Central, Dan Aricho and Satyar Shaw. So uh, one of the great things about this this job here... um, we do have four television screens in the studio. Uh, so the current setup, we have Leafs Lightning, Hurricanes Bruins, Jays Yankees in our current view. Yes, it's spectacular. I love it. But the one thing that is standing out right now mm. Is the hit Andrei Svechnikov laid on Hampus Lindholm? Wow! In the uh, in the Carolina Hurricanes Boston Bruins game, blew him up, Andrei Svechnikov. Now, first of all, hope Hampus Lindholm is okay and everything like that. Uh, but also, keep your head up, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't be uh, staring at your laces when you're coming around your own net, especially in postseason hockey. And you have Andrei Sveshnikov kind of forechecking. And I think it's a perfectly clean hit. Sveshnikov glides into him, shoulder into chest, no head contact, no run. The puck is right there. Lindholm releases the puck as soon as he's about to get hit. So it's not a late hit or anything. Doesn't leave his feet. It's a textbook hit in my estimation. I don't see any fault in what Sveshnikov did. Uh, So I guess kind of the question is like, (laughs) do we still want these massive collisions in hockey Yes. The way that we used to, you know, and you you throw in the old Rock'em Sock'em videos and just watch, you know, seven minutes of massive hits, uh, Scott Stevens leveling guys across the blue line and that type of thing. But um, it also kind of reminded me of uh, the Matt Kachuk uh, hit on uh, some of the, the Oiler defensemen that uh, got him into some trouble with Zach Cassian. But obviously it uh, didn't end up in a big penalty or that big of a skirmish for Svechnikov. Let's bring in uh, Dan Rosen uh, of NHL.com. Thanks for this, Dan. Now, what'd you think of the Svechnikov hit on Lindholm? Well, you know, I'm just kind of catching up to it now. I didn't see it live. So I'm kind of just, as we speak, I'm seeing it. I mean, the puck is there. He just releases it. It looks like he goes right through the body on the hit. I don't see a problem. You know, I mean, I'm not breaking it down frame by frame. Does he catch the head? Maybe. Um, Is the head the principal, you know, the main point of contact there? Uh, I think he goes through the body, elbow yeah. tucked, you know. So we'll see. I mean, look, I I want these hits in the game. I think physicality is a big part of the game. And Andre Sveshnikov sees a guy he can hit uh, with the puck. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, unfortunately, and this is what I think we all really should be looking at, is not so much the hit, but we got to hope that Hampus Lindholm yeah. is okay. You know, I mean, that that's the hard part. I saw one last night you know, at, at Madison Square Garden, Ryan Lindgren on Ricard Raquel, and it was called a major penalty. They rescinded it to the roughing minor because they can't rescind the major altogether. There has to be a penalty. 
there was some debate of whether it was a penalty at all, but unfortunately, Ricard Raquel and was really struggling, and mm-hmm. now he's likely out for game two. So that's what I, my concern would be. But as far as the hit, I mean, from what I saw, and I'm not an expert at this, but from what I saw, I saw a guy who played it through the body um, with the puck having just been released. Like, he was committed to the hit, uh, I think, you know, as a, mm-hmm. like watching it again here as we talk live, you know. I mean, he's committed to the hit before the puck's released. It is bang, bang. Yeah. No, I'm with you there, Dan. I mean, no, no fault, but you're right. I mean, hopefully Hampus Lindholm is okay. And, but, you know, bigger picture on that series, it certainly looks like the Carolina Hurricanes are going to take a 2-0 series lead. We'll see what happens in the third. And as much as the Hurricanes were a wagon in the regular season, there was some doubt about, okay, do they have the same success in the postseason? Can the Bruins be a tough matchup for them? Are they making it uh, a bit too easy, seem a bit too easy at this stage, you think? Yeah, I mean, I mean, right now they are. You know, you look at the first game, and it was—I mean, it wasn't really close. Mm-hmm. You know, five-one. It was all Carolina. And now you look at this one, and it's four-one, all Carolina. Now, uh, I'm—you know—I mean, I'm curious how do the Bruins respond here in the third period? Because even if they don't come back, it sort of sets the tone for Game Three, which is back in their barn. Um, you know, are they going to be have a better period? Can they improve on this? I mean, you look at look down the line on their side, 10, 10 minor penalties right now. I mean, this is, you know, I, I, you can't, you can't be this, this way. And I understand there are some in there that are part of the roughing after the Svechnikov hit and all that stuff. I get that. There's a lot of guys in the penalty box all at one time, but you're playing a team right now that that's feeling it. You can't be giving them opportunities. And we saw Aho get one. We saw Niederreiter get one on the power play. Um, you know, I mean, we, the Bruins have to be more careful, uh, play within themselves a little bit more. Uh, but it's a struggle right now because Carolina is feeling really good. And they were feeling really good at the end of the regular season, too. Let's not forget. They are, uh, they are so good. But as the old cliche goes, uh, series hasn't started until somebody lost a home game. Uh, unless, of course, you get to Game 7. <laughs> right. <laughs> then the cliche doesn't really work so well. Uh, but... Um, you know, it's it's interesting with the Bruins, right? Uh, there, there's obviously still some doubt about w- where the future lays for, for Patrice, Patrice Bergeron. He's had such a good year. But, you know, I think one of the things that has made them so good, and I know we get caught up. We just spent a segment talking about how good Kale McCarr is, Dan. But Charlie McAvoy, because he doesn't really have the offense, and I think Miro Heiskanen is kind of in this, this category too, where they – they're better two-way defensemen, but they just don't get the same hype as other guys because they don't score as much as the Yossi's and McCars and Quinn Hughes's of the world. Well, yeah, I mean, Charlie McAvoy had 56 points this season. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I mean, that's that's nothing compared to uh, Kel McCarr. It's, it's <laughs> nothing compared to McCarr. It's nothing compared to Yossi. It's nothing compared to Edmund. I get that. Um still a significant amount yeah it's it's still a good run for a guy you know it's it's still you know a, a very strong regular season where it showcases you know his ability as an offensive player you know i mean look yossi was terrific mccarr plays on a terrifically offensive team uh so does headman and both of them are awesome uh, but i would put mcavoy in the category with guys like fox uh ekblad morgan riley um, John Carlson, 
You know, I, I think those other three guys set themselves apart this year. Quinn Hughes would be in that category with, with McAvoy, mm-hmm. too. But he is a terrific two-way defenseman. He really is. Uh, and he can eat so many minutes, too. He can play 25, 26 minutes a night and not be winded and, and be fine. He, he learned a lot. And Charlie McAvoy will tell you this. He learned so much about playing two-way hockey, playing with Zidane O'Chara. Uh, I think Zidane O'Chara is one of the best professors in the game, to be honest with you, Mm -hmm. because whoever he plays with improves their game so much and goes on to become more of a stout, more of an impact player. And and when McAvoy played with Chara, he he really learned a ton about how to play the game the right way. And you see that every night from Charlie McAvoy. He is a stalwart guy that you can – you build a blue line around him. No, you I mean, yeah, he's an absolutely incredible defenseman. I'm with you as far as overall guys. That's why I love a guy like Mira Haskinen so much, too. I mean, if oh, he yeah. wants to, to put up points, he can, but he controls the game from the back end. I did want to also ask you about the Rangers and Penguins series. Uh, the Penguins drawing first blood, winning that triple overtime thriller against Rangers. And overall, I thought the Penguins were really strong start to finish. And being able to win a road game to start off a series, I know it's only game one, but uh, do the Rangers find themselves in a, in a little bit of trouble already, you think? Well, I, I mean, I'll tell you what, I think the Penguins were really good for 81 minutes in that game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that sound crazy? Yeah. Right? Uh, like the first 25 minutes of that game, or they, I thought it was pretty much all Rangers. Mm-hmm. 24 minutes of that game, I thought it was pretty much all Rangers. Um, but they, you know, and they had a two to nothing lead and, and, and they, they couldn't hold it. And then they had a 3-2 to two lead, and they couldn't hold it. Um, so, yeah, I think the Rangers, you know, look, when you lose game one in your home building, especially when you lose it in triple overtime and your goaltender has to make 79 saves, yeah, you're in a bit of trouble because now you're down a game. Your goalie has faced a ton of shots. He doesn't have a ton of time to rest. It's just one day off here. Uh, you know, until he's ready to go again. So I guess you could say they're in a little trouble, but they're not, there's no reason to panic because outside of the second period, really, that was the only period where the Penguins absolutely took control of that game. But the Rangers had control of it in the first game, in the first period, right? So overtime was, I thought, was back and forth and fairly even for all the minutes that they played in overtime. I mean, I think the Rangers are going to be all right, to be honest with you. And now, look, and more than likely, the way it seems right now, they're facing their number three goalie for the Pittsburgh Penguins. That's got to give you confidence that you're the New York Rangers. It really has to. You have to believe that you can have success against the third-string goalie. If you can't do it, it's on you, in my estimation. And, you know, look, Louis Domingue was great coming in, made 17 saves, but now he's had some time to think about it. He's had some time to prepare if he's getting game two. Uh, he didn't have any time to think. He just kind of came in and went, and now, you know, I wonder if uh, a little bit of extra time is not his friend. We'll see. Uh, do you feel similarly about Florida? Uh, it was kind of a weird game. Obviously, Tom Wilson gets hurt, but I was kind of surprised that uh, Florida wasn't able to, to score a bit more. Well, I'll tell you what. I was, we have 16 people uh, at NHL.com that made predictions for the playoffs in the first round. I was the only one that picked the Washington Capitals. <laughs> you may be the only person anywhere that picked anyway, the Washington Capitals. You know what? I look outside I of Washington, of course. Yeah. And I know it was a long shot, and and it's still very much a long shot. Even after it's less of a long shot now because they got a game. They only have to win three of the next six instead of you know four and seven. So I get you know like it, it, I get that. 
But what I like about Washington is experience, number one, uh, and they were a very good road team all year. So home ice advantage really wouldn't matter if they had it. They've been a very good road team and not so great at home all year. So that's number two. Uh, and I understand Florida's been great at home all year. But also just the know-how, you know, mm-hmm. just that understanding of how to play playoff hockey. And I said this on our podcast today, the NHL at the Ring podcast. I said, Florida should have learned its lessons last season. <laughs> it didn't need to learn it in game one. They should have already learned those lessons last season when they played Tampa about how to play in the playoffs. About you're not always going to get four or five. You've got to be able to lock it down when you get a lead, especially going into the third period. They didn't do that in game one. They, they left it open for a team that wasn't great this year, but mind you still had 100 points and has a lot of experience. And so I, I'm very curious to see how Florida responds now. Did they finally learn the lesson of what playing in playoff hockey is all about? Or do they continue after to learn it? Because if they continue to have to learn it, they're not going to win the series. Yeah, I was kind of surprised at how lackadaisical a lot of the Panthers players were. I mean, and none of them was more personified by that play Mackenzie Weger did uh, on the power play where, I mean, on one, uh, on the breakout where Ovechkin just jumps him and takes the puck from yeah. him and leads to the Kuznetsov goal. I mean, just a really sloppy play from a guy who's been very, very dependable all season long. Uh, shifting gears to the West for a second here, and the game coming up a bit later tonight is the Kings and the Oilers. And, you know, the Kings were able to win that first series on the road. And, you know, a lot of things kind of did go their way. But for the most part, I mean, no, not for the most part. I mean, they kept McDavid and Dreisaitl off the score sheet uh, on at even strength. Uh, how do you think this series is trending after the first game? Well, I mean, it's trending. Obviously, the Kings are feeling pretty good, and they should because they played to their identity in game one. You know, they played hard. They made it difficult uh, on the Edmonton Oilers. They managed them. They took advantage of opportunities when the opportunities presented. No better than the game-winning goal, obviously. A gaffe, no question about it, but the Kings then took advantage of that. Um, And I I think what the – it's got to be more five-on-five for the Edmonton Oilers, and it's got to be more than just Connor McDavid and Leon's five title, you know, like it, it has to be. Connor McDavid's goal was a thing of beauty in that game. I mean, it was an incredible play, an incredible individual play that might happen once a game. And that guy's good enough to make it happen once a game and make a difference when it does happen. But they need more from other guys. It's the same old story with the Edmonton Oilers. They need more from other guys. The Kings have no choice but to get more from a lot of guys because they don't have that elite goal scorer have that elite playmaker like the Oilers have in, in, in McDavid and Drysaddle. So it's got to be by commission, by committee. Uh, there, need, there just needs to be more for the Edmonton Oilers from across the board. And Mike Smith was the goalie of, you know, the month. You know, wasn't he <laughs> terrific? And yep. you know what? Playoffs, playoffs have a different quality, I guess. And Mike Smith has to have a better performance. He has to be able to rebound. Uh, I don't mind when he goes and plays the puck because he's so good at it throw it into the middle of the ice. No, uh, it's uh, one of the first lessons they teach you in, uh, in peewee practice, yeah. right? So <laughs> uh, <laughs> the coaches were right on that one. Um, yeah, but moving away from the playoffs, I just want to get your quick take on what happened here in Vancouver over the last couple of days. And, um, you know, Jim Rutherford just not, uh, not committing fully to Bruce Boudreaux despite the second half success and almost getting into the playoffs after what was just an absolutely horrendous start for this team. Uh, 
did it surprise you that the Canucks aren't, you know, you know, opening up the checkbook for Bruce Boudreau after what they saw? Um, sort of. Uh, what surprised me more is that they wanted to take a wait and see approach like this. Like we don't want, we'll let them coach a full season before, um, we decide if we want to keep him and all that. Like, I don't know what more Bruce Boudreau could do short of win the Stanley cup, uh, that would convince him, convince the Canucks that he can coach and he was good for this team. I think more from Boudreau's perspective, if, what do the Canucks do? What's, what is their trajectory? What, what, what's their path now? Are they going to go and trade a bunch of guys and go into a rebuild? Does he want to be a part of that? I don't think he would want to be a part of that. But are they going to go try and be contenders right away? Then maybe he's the right guy. But he has an out, too, so I think he has to make that decision. And, they, you know, they need to be upfront and honest on both ways, him to them and them to him, about how it will work out. But the other thing that came to my head was if the Canucks, don't know if Boudreaux is their guy, then why don't they just let him go and have a coaching search to find their guy? You know, like, and I understand what they're doing. They're trying to take that passive approach uh, and maybe it'll work and maybe, you know, but maybe Boudreaux doesn't want to deal with that either. Well, I mean, Boudreaux does have an option. He doesn't have to agree yeah. to this and he hasn't told June 1st. Right. And, the, and the question is going to be, you're right, Dan, like, what does he decide to do? And to a large part, is there a job that could open up for a playoff team right now that could be enticing enough for him to bypass it? I mean, the Flyers haven't figured out their situation. Maybe they're a team that would you know, jump on hiring Boudreaux with stuff that's been suggest- suggested in the past. But do you look at a team right now in the postseason and say if they lose, they're probably making a coaching change? Do you have a team or two that you're, you're wondering about that that's currently in the playoffs? In the playoffs right now, yeah. I, I don't. I don't think about a team that if they lose, they, they would make a coaching change right now. I, I don't see it. You know, Dallas, if Rick Bonus doesn't want to do it anymore, I guess that's a possibility. Um, you know, we'll see where that goes. I, otherwise, I don't see where coaching changes are coming for playoff teams. I could be wrong. Dallas would be the only one that I could see it happening, and I think part of that would just be on Rick Bonus's decision, you know, rather than – just them getting rid of him. I think it would be have to be a mutual thing there if that were the case. But uh, I think the Flyers and Boudreaux make a ton of sense, though. Like, if he wanted he, – he's – home base is Hershey. He, you know, his, I think his, his wife might be running the Hershey Bears right now. <laughs> um, you know, like, you know, like the, 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 not the Bears, the, the junior program. That's, that's the junior program that they have there. Um, it's not far from Philadelphia. Uh, the Flyers are a team – I think that need a coach like Boudreaux who empowers players provided they play within the structure that, you know, he wants them to play in. Uh, I think that could be a fit. And Chuck Fletcher has also worked with him before, obviously in Minnesota. Um, So I wonder if they would go down that path again, but we'll see. But, you know, I think this obviously has to get ironed out in Vancouver first, but Philadelphia being an East team, Boudreaux being an Eastern guy, um, home base being not far from there. There's a lot of things to, you know, sink your teeth into there. Um, one, you know, the other team that comes to mind that that's still kind of up in the air, uh, Pete DeBoer and, and the Las mm-hmm. Vegas Golden Knights. You th- do you sense a change coming there? I don't know. Like, uh, perhaps, but I think it's, and I also said this on our podcast today, uh, I think this is less about coaching 
and more about managing right now because we know the pieces are there in Vegas for them to be a good team. And frankly, they just didn't have them this season. You know, like I, I know we don't use injuries as an excuse. This, that, and I think you might, I think you might be able to do it in Vegas this season, to be honest. Like, I mean, there were so many guys in and out of the lineup and whatnot. Um, but, you know, what's management going to do? How are they going to put this puzzle together within the structure of the salary cap? You know, Riley Smith, do you want him back? Well, okay, but who's going? You're going to try to get trade Evgeny Dadkov again? You know, I mean, I don't have no trade clause, but they got shaved here from their from what they have, and you can't just go into next season with a bunch of guys on LTIR either. So uh, I think it's less about coaching and more about management. And, you know, maybe they make a change to coaching level, and maybe they don't. I don't think it's the biggest impact, though. I think they have to figure out who's going to be on the roster more than anything. Dan, uh, always appreciate your time and your insights. Thanks for this. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, there is Dan Rosen at uh, D Rosen NHL on Twitter and check out his work at NHL.com. Uh, some interesting stuff there on the, the coaching situations, obviously. Uh, Bruce Boudreau as well. Story's not going away, Sat. Nope, it is not. <laughs> well, I mean, and I mean, they didn't pour cold water on it. If nope. anything, they added a little gasoline to the discussion, and it's perfectly fine. They were honest, and you know, we wondered if they're negotiating through the media to some degree with how honest they were about yep. details. Um, and so, that's the the question more than anything. It's how does Boudreaux feel about what happened? Yep. And I know his agents come out and said that hey, they didn't say anything that you know. Um, they haven't spoken to him about anyway, so he wasn't taken aback by anything, at least not publicly. Yeah. But you kind of just wonder about that. Um, I, I'd still say there's a decent chance we see Boudreaux come back on that one-year option. Yeah. I'd still say that, you know, some of the stuff I heard that I was still, you know, trending towards him coming back hasn't really changed. Just the whole extension talk to some degree has just kind of gone cold. And there may be one, some discussions, but it's very clear based on what Rutherford himself and Alvin said Right now, they're not interested in an extension. They want him back, but yeah. for next year. Well, there's there were negotiations of some kind, talks yes. of some kind. I don't know what happened in those talks. If there were uh, legitimate, you know, back and forth about what an extension would look like, or if it was just always a hard and fast, uh, we'll we'll keep you on the option. But uh, you know, Elliot Friedman mentioned it on thirty two. You know, we had been hearing that on the weekend that uh, they were talking every day. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes from here. Uh, You're listening to Canuck Central.